Okay, for the main message today, we're going to hear from Matt Steele, and his sermon is entitled, 1 Peter, Part 6. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, it's just packed in here today. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I was listening to Mr. Gregory in, in the first message, and uh, something that's been rolling around in my mind as we've been going through First Peter is very much uh, this theme that we get from Peter's writings that uh, things are about to happen. You know, in his life, as he's, as he's writing through this letter, kind of get the feeling as though he really felt like the end time was coming quickly. And, of course, we get that from some of Paul's writings, too, that the church, that the early church really felt like things were going to happen pretty rapidly. And, of course, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still waiting. And it's interesting. We're going to touch on, on some of that today because uh, Peter, you get that sense from Peter, and then he also gives us tools in which to navigate this very long waiting period that we seem to have between uh, the birth of the church, and hopefully very soon, the return of Jesus Christ. So as we've studied this, uh, this letter of Peter, we've learned many things. As I uh, mentioned last time, we've, you know, we've, we've learned that our faith, although we practice it in many ways in private, it is public. It's supposed to be public. We're supposed to share it uh, in the public sphere. It's a public faith, and it's uh, supposed to be visible. That's not always easy, is it? It's sometimes a challenge uh, to do that in life and work. Uh, how do you do that and, you know, not make all your colleagues run away from you and you can't get your job done? It's a difficult challenge, but something that we need to think about. And then also we are to show our, the, the love of God that has been poured into us. We're, to, we're supposed to show that in our community, in, in our lives and how we live. We're supposed to share that with our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues and our brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ, of course. And last time we shared how we're supposed to love our wives and love our husbands and, and the importance of making sure that we're deliberate about the love and the fellowship of, of the church and in our actual physical family. <clears throat> and then, of course, the love we're supposed to have just frankly, with everyone that we meet. And, you know, sometimes I have a vision in my head. Uh, Joseph came with me to work yesterday. And I think most people have realized uh, that Joseph is a special little boy because he likes to hug everybody, whether he've met them before or not. And uh, there was a few new people that were kind of like, oh, okay. Doesn't bother him any. He just shares the love. And if I'm talking to them, they must be okay, and I'm going to give them a hug. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm sure it'll change maybe if he keeps doing it when he's, you know, a 20-year-old man. It might be a different reaction. But it's interesting the look on people's faces. A little shock at first, and then their hearts warm. Just an expression of love. And it's amazing the power that a hug can have. And so we should think about those things as we think about how we are to love really anyone that we come into contact with. And that seems like a tall order because there are the people that are really hard to love, aren't there? We, we all know somebody that's really hard to love, and hopefully nobody's pointing fingers at me right now. But, you know, for whatever reason, because of conflict or personality or whatever the reason is, it can be really difficult to love. But this is our calling, isn't it? This is our calling. And not just a calling, a commandment. It was the new commandment. You remember? Jesus said, and it was recorded in, in John 13, verse 34, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
didn't just say love one another. He said love one another as I have loved you. By this, will all, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And we should pause and think about that scripture because how big was his love for us? And he demands that we love one another in the same way. He came down to this earth, to our level, and gave his life for us. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. You ever notice that? Those under the earth. Well, who's under the earth? The dead are under the earth. And they will rise. And they will bow. And confess. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And so, we do, don't we? We confess with our hearts, with our minds. Remember Paul said, let this mind be in you. And it's, it's a it's a deliberate choice of love. It's not just a feeling of love. It's a deliberate choice of love. He says that our mind should be like Jesus. We see the love of God spread abroad in Christ and then in us. And it's interesting. As I said, Paul uses the mind as a statement of love. Let this mind be in you. There are plenty of people that we love just naturally. We might love our children just naturally. Might, we should, love our children just naturally. And we might love people that are lovable, that are fun, that we like, that have great personalities and interesting stories about their life. And we just love them. But then there are those that we have to think about it and have the mind of Christ to love. They're the challenges. Not just what the heart feels. It is also something directed in the mind. Deliberate, thoughtful, and specifically applied love towards those around us. So, let's get back to 1 Peter. and We're going to pick it back up in chapter 3 and verse 13. And he said, and he who, uh, rather, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, you know, there's a very famous passage in there, right? Be ready to give a defense of the hope that's within us. And many Christians talk about that and and uh, articulate their, their defense to the gospel. Being ready in, pol- in apologetics. You know, our boys even go to an apologetics. Uh, uh, they, they study apologetics in one of their speech and, and, uh, classes. And, and the idea to be, to be armed with the scriptures. Ready to give a defense of this hope that we, we have in us. So are we ready? Are we ready to answer questions like this? 
How can there be a God when there is so much evil in the world? And we answer that question. When people ask, how can there possibly be life after death? How can we answer that? When they ask, did Jesus ever really exist? Isn't that just a parable, like a fable story? How do you know the Bible is true? Easy questions, right? No, they're not easy questions. And it's okay to say that they're not easy questions. But how prepared are we to answer those? What is our defense? What answer will we give? What will we do when they demand to know why we have this hope within us. This hope. And people do ask those questions. Maybe not to our face. Maybe they don't, you know, look for a conflict and an argument. But I, I remember um, some time ago, shortly after my dad had passed away, I was talking with a colleague at work. And uh, she remarked how another colleague of ours had talked to her and said, I can't believe Matt is even at work right now. And, and that he's, you know, functioning or something like that. You know, I'd be a mess or something along those lines. And it was really interesting because this colleague said to me, they don't understand what we know. They don't have the hope, right? It's, it's interesting. People ask that question. How do they function? How, why do they live the way they live? What is this hope that we have? So how do we answer these questions? Well, firstly, we need to note that Peter gives us direction in this actual passage itself. How to approach those that ask us for the answer. Firstly, he says to give answers out of meekness and fear. Meekness. What is that? Humility. Humbleness. And fear. What is that? Fear of them asking the question? No. Fear of God. A respect of God. And thinking about the answers that we're going to give. In other words, we need to be humble and speak the truth. You may say that's obvious, but it's not always the case. Let's take a look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14. He says, we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Our answers cannot be intellectual ones, clever arguments, right? We're not trying to win a debate. We are just trying to defend the hope, the gospel that is in us. How do we do that? Give the truth in love. The word of God. Jesus' own words. This is how we give a defense of the hope that we have. And it doesn't matter really how crazy we sound. You know, when I have been asked at times, I, I actually, I think I've shared with you before, I have a boss who's, he's gone on our church website before. And he asks me questions about things. I know he may even be tuned in today. But it's interesting. He, he asks questions. He's like, if you don't mind, I'm curious about this. And he, and he never argues. He just wants to know. And it's pretty interesting. And maybe a tendency to, I don't know, mitigate some of the things that you might say. Because you don't want to come off a little crazy, a little odd. And I find that it's easier, in the end, to just say what you know. 
to say what you believe, to speak the truth. To not try and soften it or, you know, you're not going to be rude. I, I remember one time I was in a, I was in a, a class at college and there was a Jehovah's Witness friend of mine, actually, and he was trying to console uh, an, indiv an individual in our class who had recently lost a relative. And um, he ended up telling her that that, that relative was in hell. Well, he was trying to be very specific, and he was trying to explain, well, hell is the grave. It's not the burning hot place. Well, you can imagine she went running out of the room in tears. So, sure, we should be wise in how we speak the truth. And that's where the love comes in, isn't it? We speak the truth in love. Not anger, not in judgment, not in condemnation, not criticizing or belittling. It's not a bludgeon, is it, for us to use against those ignorant people speaking the truth in love. It's a delicate instrument of surgical precision. Why? Because we're trying to infect them. We're trying to pass on a disease, the hope that lies within us. That's what we're trying to pass on, so that we speak the truth in love. Of course, there's another ingredient to defending the gospel. Anybody want to guess what that is? Knowing what it is. What is the gospel? What is the good news? What is the truth? What are the words that we can stand on? Jesus' teachings, his commandments, Peter and Paul's explanations of the word of God, and as we heard last week, their commentary on the Old Testament that is still very much required for us to speak the truth in love. The writings of the prophets, the history of God's interaction with mankind, and and specifically the nation of Israel. All these things need to be in us. We need to study these things. We need to learn, if we don't already know, what it is that we are hanging our hope on. We need to read it, remember it, and incorporate it. So, hopefully I'm not making you feel too badly. Because I remember a time uh, when I was writing this this, this morning. I, I remember a time when I was about 16 years old, something like that. My dad decided that he was going to memorize the Bible. And I was like, well, that's ambitious. And he, so he said about it. And there was, a, there was a, I can't remember the guy's name. It was like a Bible memory guy. Have you ever heard of him? He was internationally known. Anybody could ask him a a scripture reference, and he could just tell you it. Phenomenal. And he, he developed this method by which uh, you could memorize the scriptures. And so my dad decided he was going to do that. And I thought, well, good luck when you get to know numbers, you know. But I don't know. Maybe it works. But he tried it, and he did it for years. And he could remember whole swaths of scripture without having to look it up. I never really got the guts to you know, give them a test. And, you know. Well, what does this passage say? But I was always struck by that. And I, in fact, I tried it myself a little bit, and I was 16 and not very patient. But he set about learning as much as he could of the Bible, of Scripture. And of course, it's not just learning what is written, is it? It's understanding what is written. What does it mean? So with humility and meekness, as Peter says, we are to defend this hope we have with truth. Thy word is truth and love. And do all of this not fearing man but God, respecting him, putting him first, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the danger. What danger do you and I face? Some ridicule, maybe. Some scoffing. But that may change. It might change in the future. 
Peter says in First uh, Peter three eighteen, he says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long suffering waited." in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, not to be you know, bathed and to, to make our external clean. But the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. It's a curious passage, isn't it? I mean, it jumps out to me as just being completely jarring from what he was talking about before. Where did Noah and, and the ark come from? What does this have to do with anything? Well, you know, this is an interesting passage because there's, there's some crazy theories about what is meant here. And I don't really want to get into those. But what I see in this passage is just what Peter said. That Christ preached to the world at the time of Noah. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know exactly what that means. But it is what Peter says. And he says that they were being warned, essentially, of a judgment that was coming. Does that mean, then, that Jesus was walking around on the earth at the time of Noah, telling people, you need to go to Noah and get into the ark? I, I, I don't think so. But what does it mean? And Peter doesn't really make it clear. But I have a theory, and it's something that we're familiar with. What if Noah was the means by which Jesus preached to that world? That through Noah, giving a defense of the ark that he was building. Hey, what are you building? A little bit could be a barn, isn't it? I'm building an ark. Why are you building an ark? Because God said. Why did God say? Because he's bringing a flood. Why is he bringing a flood? Because the end of all flesh has come before him. Okay. Noah's lost it. Did he give a defense of what he was doing? I mean, he couldn't hide what he was doing. <laughs> right? By all the measurements that we know about the ark, it was pretty obvious what he was doing. So, did he give a defense of the hope that was within him? The hope that if he did what God told him, he and his family would be saved. I think it's a reasonable thing to assume. Before God was going to come and wipe away the world in a flood. The biggest natural disaster in human history. And it is interesting, isn't it, that in spite of those that have criticized this idea, we have cultures from around the world that have talked about a global flood. Disparate cultures that had no connection with one another at the time of their writings or carvings and so on. It happened. It seems to me that Peter is drawing a comparison between two things. Between the ark and the church. He's drawing a comparison between the ark and the church. But why? Well, Peter was there when he heard Jesus in Matthew 24, and verse 36, say this. But of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, 
but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's interesting, isn't it, that this reference to Noah and this time period leading up to the flood is a theme in, in the Christian church and starting with Jesus. And for decades, Noah built this massive structure for the whole world to see, openly for them to see. I'm sure he was mocked and scorned for his work. There was a movie one time, I remember the scene about Noah, and it was pretty funny. It had Noah, I think, stepping in a bucket of pitch and sliding down the ark at one point and getting mocked at, laughed at. Sure, that happened. Let me ask you a question. How long has the church been built now in public? 2,000 years, right? Give or take. For 2,000 years, the house of God has been built. And during that time, it's been built in the sight of the whole world. And it's had conflict come against it. It's had a distortion of the truth of God. It's had lots of manipulation by men. But it's still here. The church of God is still here. There are still true believers and followers of Christ here. Like an ark. Like a symbol of a place to find refuge. Jumping ahead to uh, 2 Peter, chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So the scoffers come along and they say, hey, everything's been going along just the way it always has. God has never come in and brought about his judgment. And he says, did you forget the flood? Really? Did you forget the flood? When God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. And because of God's grace on Noah. Remember that, right? It's not Noah's grace. God's grace for Noah. That eight were saved. Otherwise, all of humanity is done. None of us would be here. Peter continues. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The same planet, the same earth, the same oceans and air, the heavens, all of this same place that was once flooded has a reservation on it. And there's a countdown to that reservation. And it's a new flood of fire. Very sobering. That is very sobering. And if we don't believe it, just look at California, right? A little spark causes untold devastation. And how much resources does it take to try and put this thing out? I heard the other day that the campfire is 40% contained. After potentially killing over 600 people and destroying an entire town. One spark. How easy would it be for God to bring fire? The 
that consumes the whole world. It's not hard for him. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's not hanging around just goofing off and now I'm I'm going to hit the reset button on the alarm and go back to sleep for a little while. He's not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness. But is long-suffering towards us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's interesting, isn't it, that we'll have scoffers Those that mock and say, well, where's God? He's not coming back. Jesus said he's going to return. He hasn't returned. He hasn't returned because he loves you. He is long-suffering towards us. He wants to save every single one of us. It says that all should come to repentance. He loves us. This is the mind of God. This is the love of God. He's patiently waiting, hoping we'll repent, turn back to him, and receive a blessing and not a curse. There is a day out there, a day of judgment, a day of terror, but also a day of justice and mercy when Jesus Christ will at long last return to the earth. It is going to happen. And central to this passage that Peter has given us is this baptism. This concept of baptism in Christ Jesus that is able to save us from all that is coming on the earth. And it's the same baptism that has given us the hope. That we have died in Christ and we have been resurrected in Christ, raised even now in that newness of life. And so we are also a church, an ark. We're an ark. We're being built into the, in the sight of the whole world that is ready to be judged, ready to be flooded with a different kind of flood. We are supposed to be examples. We are supposed to stand out and be a place where people can come and be That, I think, is why Peter is bringing the analogies up and the connection to Noah and the ark. The flood is coming. Those out there in the world do not know it. This is why we are to spread the good news. The truth of God in love. You know, if we were to think about this in the terms that Peter was writing this, we would have a lot more energy about this warning that we could deliver to the world, wouldn't we? It's kind of hard because we know there's been 2,000 years of, of time and where's the urgency? But Peter was writing this believing it was coming very soon. And it is coming very soon. But even if it doesn't come in our lifetime, For those that we know, it's one heartbeat away, isn't it? So should we try and connect with the urgency that Peter was delivering this message? This is an urgent thing for us to deliver to those that are lost. For all of us. Just as Peter said on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, he said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call for everyone. 
There's no number here. And I know sometimes we've, we've made the mistake of saying, building ourselves excuses in some way to not go out there. Well, that, maybe they're not called. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. And you're the only one carrying the invitation. I do not want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ with invitation in my pocket. For as many as the Lord our God will call, they are out there. So then in some ways we come, we kind of come back full circle to this concept of having the mind of Christ. So we've, we've had them, we've looked at the mind of Christ as being a deliberate love for one another and for those that we come into contact with. And, but then there's another element to the mind of Christ, which we find in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. This same mind that Christ had when he was suffering for us in the flesh. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He said, we've spent enough time of our past lifetime in doing the will of the nations and the Gentiles. We've walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatry. In regards to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of them. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So not only should we have this mind of Christ in, in love, but we should also have this mind of Christ in realizing and recognizing that we have ceased from sin. That we have ceased from that old life, of that lifestyle that any one of us can pick one of these things that, that Peter lists here and say, yeah, I did those things. But none of us should say, yes, I do those things. Really coming to terms and with the understanding that Christ suffered for us so that we could be free from those things. And that if we have his mind in us, we will be free from those things. In many ways, it's just another way of saying what, what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, in him... You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead to your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What an amazing passage that we are already changed by this process that Jesus Christ has made us alive in him. We've been through the waters of baptism. We are free from the chains of sin that can so, yes, easily ensnare us. We are free from this. We have been made alive. And the handwriting of requirements the old King James says, the handwriting of ordinances, the writ for our arrest, right, <laughs> has been nailed to the cross. 
Here lies. Place your name. Nailed to the cross. And what's really interesting is. At that, that verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers. You know they, they put him on a cross. And they raised him in the air. And they thought they were making a spectacle of him. Paul says he made a spectacle of them. Triumphing, triumphing over them in it. We are dead in Jesus. Buried in baptism, raised again through him. We have ceased from sin. Do we remember that every day? We should. It's easy to just get sucked into life, the obligations of life. We are in Christ Jesus. We are alive in him. And we will be alive in him forevermore. What an amazing promise. That's the hope, isn't it? That lies within us. We can now, through the Holy Spirit of God, that lives in us in power, live a life of love and service to all those that we can reach minister to in whatever way in whatever gift each of us have been given Peter continues back in chapter 4 and verse 7 he says at first Peter he says but the end of all things is at hand therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins doesn't it Love does. It covers a multitude of sin. When we annoy one another. No. Annoy one another? You do. But love covers those things. Love says, you know what? Those things are not worth worrying about. Love will cover a multitude of sin. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You have a man mandate. You know, if you're like me, I'm the kind of person that if something needs to be done and nobody's willing to do it, I'll jump in. But I don't just automatically assume I'm the best person for the job. Maybe there's somebody else out there that's a better person for the job, but they're not jumping in. They're not getting stuck in. You have a mandate. If you have a gift, let me rephrase that. If we have the spirit of God in us, we have a gift. How are we using it? Are we using it? Do we minister to one another and to those in the world with that gift? I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I've been asking myself the same question. What else can I do with the gifts that I've been given to really make an impact in the lives of people that I come into contact with? As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to point out one critical area. I touched on it a little bit earlier. And it's regarding our speech. As he says here, he says, if, if anyone speaks, let him or he or her speak as the oracles of God. What does he mean by that? It's not a reference to the matrix, right? The oracle. Well, an oracle is, the oracles are the utterances. It is literally the word of God. So if anyone speaks, let him speak from the word of God. That's what I take this to mean. 
And I don't think it means somebody speaking up here. I think it means as we deliver, remember earlier, the word of truth, right? The truth of God in love. As we speak that forward to friends, neighbors, whoever we manage to tie up for a second and make, those, make them listen to it, right? As we do that, we need to be really careful about what we're speaking from. Are we speaking from our own opinion or from the word of God? What is that word of God? What is that truth? Jesus tells us in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And, and of course, he was talking specifically at the time about the disciples. But it doesn't end there. It's each one of us. If we are in Christ Jesus, he is sending us into the world. And for their sakes, he says, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth, by the word. The utterances of God are truth. When we speak from the word of God, we are delivering truth. When we share the word of God in the community, we are delivering truth. The truth that they desperately need. We are giving them truth. You know, it's interesting. You've probably noticed this, but certainly in the last round of political uh, events, which I think we're all glad are behind us for a little while, but if you look at, at how churches are involved in politics these days, and there's just a lot of mixing in of Christianity and politics. And I mostly see it from the conservative viewpoint, but I'm sure it happens uh, on, on the, the liberal side of, of churches too. Is that what we should be doing? Is that what we should be doing, mixing not just church and politics, but politics and the word of God? Peter's very clear, and Paul is very clear in other places, that we should speak from the word of God. The word of God only. Remember, Peter says at the, in the day of Pentecost, he said, the promise is to you and your children and all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The problem that we run into and the problem that I see in the political sphere with churches getting involved in politics is that it makes Christianity partisan. Right? Because, well, you're, you can't be a Christian unless you're you know, in the political party that I think Christians should belong to. Why do that? Why mix that? Our God is not a member of any political party. He's not a member of any social justice organization. He's not a member of any race, color, or creed. Read the New Testament. If you read the New Testament, read it again and go back and forth through the New Testament, you will find one political statement. Only one. You know what it is? Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. That's it. There are no other political statements in there. And that was enough to get the entire church into trouble. Don't get me wrong. We're not going to get out of, you know, getting in trouble with that. But Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That's the only political statement you will find. I'm convinced of that. Proclaiming Christ Jesus Lord is as far as we need to go as well. You know, there's a concept among theologians of prima scriptura, Latin for uh, the scripture first, basically. The primacy of scripture. But there's another concept. 
sola scriptura. Scripture only. Scripture alone. And I think that is a really good rule of thumb for us. And I, I see that churches in the world are, are going down a path that's opposite to that. And I think it's very important that we think about these things. We can, of course, draw from events and from p political events and events in the world. We can draw out those things to explain God's truth and how God's truth would have helped in that situation. And we can use those things as, as tools in helping somebody understand the truth of God. But we shouldn't mix the truth of God with politics. Why is this important? Well, because of what we've read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. He says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is the antithesis of politics. This is the opposite of politics. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation that is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We are ambassadors for Christ. Let us love all those that we come into contact with. Let's love them in Christ Jesus. Let's give them the truth in love. And let us have the mind of Christ in our conduct, in how we treat one another, realizing we are free from the bondage of sin and death in Christ Jesus. And let us also realize We've been freed from the politics of man's world. We are no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of the world to come. So hopefully next time I can dig into what might be the last part of uh, our study on, on Peter.